Michael Schur knows a thing or two about making successful TV. He wrote for The Office and created Parks and Recreation and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. But his newest show, The Good Place, was something very different. The NBC comedy follows four people who die and have been told that they made it to The Good Place. But one character was pretty horrible in her life and quickly figures out... There's been a big mistake. I'm not supposed to be here. We had to be incredibly detailed and specific about where everybody was going because the whole thing fit together like a giant holistic jigsaw puzzle. And if we did anything that didn't fit in with the reveal that came at the end, we would be screwed. This is the bad place. This is Showrunners. I'm Nicholas Carlson, the editor-in-chief of Insider. A showrunner does lots of things, from directing to writing to casting to picking out the makeup artists for the actors on set. The showrunner ultimately controls every facet of a TV show, which is why we created Showrunners, the podcast that talks to the people making the shows we love. On this episode of Showrunners, we talk with Michael Schur about how life can eerily imitate art and how to pitch a show about the afterlife. I have to confess, I've never... Seen the show. No, I've seen the show. <laughs> I saw the show. But I've never pitched a show to an executive before. But I, we're looking around in this room and I'm seeing like Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's a show about a police station. Right. Or like Parks and Rec. You know, it's a show about City Hall or The Office. It's like an office place drama with a terrible boss. <laughs> this has a slightly weirder... Yeah. <laughs> it was not quite as easy a sell. I pitched it simply as a show about what it means to be a good person. Mm. That was the one-line pitch because... Even though I just summarized the entire season in like four minutes, even that would be a hard way to pitch the show. It's like, you know, a lot of the problem with high concept pitches is oftentimes neither the writer nor the executives know where it's going. You can sort of guess. You can say, well, I think it might turn into this kind of thing or this might happen or this might happen. But it was such a high concept that I felt like I owed it to the people who might buy it and frankly to the actors who had to act it and to the writers who had to write it that I needed to know the whole season. So I had everything, including the twist, all planned out before we started working and before I pitched it, really. But even given that, I just really pitched it as it's a show about what it means to be a good person. How do we think of ourselves when we're good versus how we think of ourselves when we're bad? What does it even mean to be bad? You know, there's a lot of sort of lame concepts of bad behavior in TV and movies. Like, Bad behavior basically amounts often to like doing drugs or getting drunk and cheating on your girlfriend or boyfriend or something. Like that's what bad is. And I think most people aren't bad that way. Or if they are, they're also bad in other ways that are sort of more interesting. And so we spent a lot of time coming up with explanations for four different kinds of sort of bad behavior. Like Chidi's bad behavior is not a kind of bad behavior that you think about that often. He's so empathetic and so worried about his effect on the universe. He goes all the way back around and, and is driving everybody nuts. Like that's more interesting than like getting drunk and throwing a rock through a plate <laughs> glass window or something. That was how I pitched it. It's still not as simple as like funny cops or city hall or something, but it helped to clarify what I wanted the show to be about, which was just like how human beings are good and bad in the world, in the modern world. It's interesting because I picked up on a certain element, which is, Last season of Showrunners, this podcast, I interviewed Alec Berg, who is on Silicon Valley. Sure. And before that, he kind of joined Seinfeld halfway through. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about how uh, stories 
for a long time have been what he called morality plays, which do drive at morals and things like that. And, and sort of an innovation that Seinfeld had and maybe Silicon Valley has too is that there is no moral. But then I watched this show and I was like, <laughs> this is going the other way. Like lots of, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's cyclical, right? It's like we grew up on like very special episode mm. TV, you know, which was like <laughs> every year during sweeps, it would be like, you know, Arnold on different strokes would be pressured to try a cigarette. <laughs> and it would be like, you know, you this you had to this is a serious one, you had to watch this. And it was hokey and silly. And so then in the nineties it sort of went the other way. Seinfeld was obviously revolutionary in that regard. It was famously Jerry's thing was no no learning, no hugging was yeah. his rule, oh right? And, you know, even like Friends, which was a little gooier and had more like romance and stuff. There wasn't a ton of like morality in Friends by design, but then like it goes the other way. Then like in drama, at least in the early 2000s, like what was The Wire? What was Sopranos? That whole run of shows was deeply about like, you know, society, institutions, the calcification of society, all that stuff. When I was becoming a professional writer, that's what was dominating the landscape. And then I, my first job out here was on The Office and The Office wasn't necessarily about morality, but it was definitely about like ecosystems and society and kind of how your job affects your personal life. Greg Daniels used to describe the sort of lasting image that he had of the office was a concrete parking lot with little tiny flowers, like dandelions sort of poking through the cracks, you know, like, yeah. and the show was about those little flowers. It was about like, where are the little glimmers of hope that you can find in a sort of bleak antiseptic universe? So that's how I started out here was taking that view of the world and I like it. I think it's fun. And I watched Seinfeld like everybody else, but I never was passionate about it. It was like a little puzzle. Every episode was a little puzzle. And once you solve the puzzle, yeah. there wasn't really anything to grab onto. I prefer to watch other shows. I'll happily watch, you know, episodes of The Simpsons even in reruns more than Seinfeld because The Simpsons had this kind of beating heart at the center of it that I don't think Seinfeld had. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So when Parks and Rec came out and when The Office came out, both of those shows had kind of not great reviews the first year. Yeah. And then their changes were made and good reviews came after. And then they obviously went on the long, glorious runs. Brooklyn Nine-Nine came out and it had great reviews right away. It's a good place at good reviews also. But I am curious, though. It's been a season now. What did you kind of learn about the show that took you into like this next season that's coming up? It was a very different situation because, again, I had the whole season plotted out. Yeah. Part of the reason that shows get off to bumpy starts is that you're flailing much of the early going of any tv show is trial and error and the problem is it's like you're writing a diary but your diary's being read out loud to everybody you yeah. know anytime your mistakes are public in the way that tv shows are public it's like you're doomed if you think about it like you make a pilot right the pilot is 21 minutes you have six or seven characters in your show so in your pilot, your main character's on screen for probably 10 minutes. Your side characters are on screen for somewhere between three and six minutes. That is the sum total of all of the knowledge that an audience has about your show. Between 10 and 15 minutes of stuff. And then you do episode two and it's the same thing. So, you know, in, in episode two or three, you have some side character make some dumb joke about some dumb thing. And the audience loses its mind. And you're like, what are you talking about? It was a throwaway joke that somebody like tossed out at two in the morning during the rewrite. But it's like, it, you can't blame the audience. That's all they know. That's what happened with both The Office and Parks and Rec to some degree. And both of those shows, by the way, only did six episodes in their first season. Mm. Nowadays, six episodes 
and that's like of an entire season. That's a typical season. But back then, it wasn't at all. Back then, it was 22 or 24. That's it. Mistakes were made in both of those shows. I'll only talk about Parks and Rec because, you know, The Office wasn't, I didn't create or adapt. But in Parks and Rec, we certainly made mistakes with our characters. We did not know everything about them. We didn't know where they were going, what kind of people they were, how they all fit together. So we made six episodes and then we stopped and we were off the air for the normal May to September. And people had only those six episodes to go on. And we had already begun to course correct for what we thought were the mistakes we had made. But the audience saw what we put out there and they reacted. And that was totally legitimate. Like I never got angry at the audience for reacting. I got angry at myself for not anticipating or not seeing clearly enough to know that we were screwing up. Hmm. It's very different than The Good Place because the high concept of it required me to know the whole season. And so... I didn't know whether people would like the show or not like the show, but I was pretty sure that I would not face the same problems that I faced with, say, Parks and Rec, because we weren't guessing. We knew the whole thing. If people rejected the whole thing, they rejected the whole thing. There's nothing you can do. But we knew what the whole thing was. We knew where everybody was going. In fact, we had to be incredibly detailed and specific about where everybody was going because the whole thing fit together like a giant holistic jigsaw puzzle and... If we did anything that didn't fit in with the reveal that came at the end, we would be screwed because people would go like, well, this doesn't make sense. I was very scared of that. I had never written anything that you would consider science fiction or genre before. And I consulted a lot of people to say, like, what am I walking into? What are the pitfalls? What are the mistakes people make? I have a great amount of respect for the genre of science fiction. I love science fiction. I love science fiction novels. I love science fiction movies, TV shows. I was a newbie and I felt like if I didn't learn a lot about it, I was going to fall on my face. And yeah. so before we started shooting Good Place, we knew who everybody was and where everybody was going. So that sort of like early critical thumbs down followed by later critical thumbs up, that didn't worry me. Plenty of other things to worry <laughs> me. <laughs> I wasn't lacking for things to be worried about, but that wasn't one of them. Let's talk about the season a little bit in more detail. What keeps coming to mind is the scene where Janet, who's sort of like computer from Star Trek right. or Alexa, right. but embodied, she like breaks down and stops working. And then I was enjoying the whole season, but then the scene where she starts handing a cactus to someone, <laughs> I was like, that's when I was like, okay, I really like this show. Sure. Anything else? No, Janet, this is actually a, a cactus. This might take a while. Yeah, she contains all of the knowledge of the universe. Like, there's nothing that she doesn't know about everything that's ever happened. What happens in the show is in the middle of it, she basically is killed and her memory is wiped clean. And she sort of has to re-upload all of the knowledge in the universe, which takes some time. She can also conjure anything in the world. You can say, can I please have a cup of chamomile tea? And she'll just create it and hand it to you. And so there's a sequence while she's like buffering and trying to re-upload all the knowledge of the universe... They keep asking her for things, and she just keeps handing them different cacti. And it's mainly her and Ted Danson. And it's one of those things where, like, you know two things when you're writing it. Number one, we're enjoying this too much, and we're making this too long. (laughs) And number two, we're not going to cut any of it. Because it's going to be too fun to watch her just hand cactus after cactus to Ted Danson and have his sense of quiet contained exasperation it was like what's classic it. like straight man yeah like he's balloon. yes well that's what's so amazing about him is that if you want him to be a straight man he's the best straight man in the world 
And if you want him to be silly, he's the best silly man in the world. He has every club in his uh, bag. And it's fun to, to say like, ooh, let's make Ted be a straight man in this scene while Darcy hands him a cactus over and over again. And then watch him execute it to perfection. It was just like super classic comedy. It was really fun. Ted Danson. That's one of my notes. It's just yeah, Ted Danson. Ted Danson. Yeah, that's right. Tell me about that. How did that happen? And- I like to think it happened because when I was like nine, I saw an episode of Cheers right. and fell <laughs> deeply in love. <laughs> I think Cheers is the best show of all time. I think Sam Malone is the best character of all time. Hmm. I think Ted's characterization of Sam Malone is the best characterization of all time. So I believe that the reason that Ted is in this show is because I saw the cheers and my entire life I've wanted to write for Ted Danson. There are certain people that have what I would consider to be like perfect comedy skills. Comedy skills aren't just like, are you funny? It's timing, rhythm, all of the different sort of things that are required to be a great comedian. Ted's perfect. And when I was designing this show, I sort of thought like, well, this is my chance. Like this character, Ted's now 60 something. And this character requires that kind of person because in order to sell designer of heaven, you needed someone with some gravitas, someone older. And I sort of thought, well, well, this is probably my only chance. Like I've never had a chance before. This kind of requires him. And so I'm going to take my shot and it all worked out. Ted Danson is so likable. Yeah. And then he's this bad guy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I talked to a bunch of people who said that they were really sad that he turned out to be a bad guy. Uh, And I don't blame him. Like, it made me kind of sad. But he's having so much fun. When I pitched him the show, his big question was like, I don't know how to just be nice. Like, Mm. it's hard to just be nothing but sort of serene and pleasant. Hmm. And that was tough for him to imagine. And as a result of the conversations we had, we added a lot more of what appeared to be stress because stress is funny. I remember I read this article in the New Yorker years and years and years ago about the guy who designed the Citibank tower in New York city. Do you know this story? Mm -mm. Architect designed the Citibank tower. It's on like 54th street and picture in your head, a skyscraper that's sort of on stilts. The guy just for fun kind of, and for, interesting design put his stilts in the middle of each side so the corners were open hanging over the street and a architecture student was assigned the building to study and went and was like wait a second this building's unsafe in high winds and because of the way that this is built and wrote the architect uh, and he wrote back and sort of like ha 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 no yes we i know that it appears that way but really here's why you're wrong because you didn't calculate this or whatever and then the person wrote back to him was like no no no, i did calculate this you're not calculating this and suddenly he was like oh my god (laughs) and (laughs) i mean this building had been up for years so he first thought about killing himself (laughs) didn't he went to the owners of the building he explained the problem and they started fixing the building Uh, and meanwhile he's like you know having a heart attack and losing his mind every day while they're fixing the building a hurricane forms in the Atlantic and starts moving up the eastern seaboard. Eventually, of course, it all ended up being fine. But the point is, after Ted and I talked about his character, which was originally, I thought it was just like a sort of benevolent, serene, blithely, pleasant Hmm. angel. I was like, oh, no, he should be like that architect. And that was so much more fun for Ted to play. A guy who, in the second episode of the show, he's so distraught that there's a flaw in his design that he panics, sees a puppy dog, thinks the puppy dog is part of the flaw. It runs up and kicks it into the sky and it flies into the sun and explodes. (laughs) And, and he's just kind of constantly having a nervous breakdown. 
What's happening? I give up. I can't help the people I promised that I would help. And of course, the reveal is that the whole thing is a ruse, that he's doing that to put more stress and pain into the lives of the people he's torturing. But on an episode-to-episode basis, that was a lot more fun for Ted to play than just like happy, pleasant angel guy. My TV viewing habits have become what everyone's are now. You know, it's like I do have cable, but I watch a lot of Netflix. I watch the cable stuff. Sure. And oftentimes watching something on broadcast feels foreign. People have different expectations when they watch Mm -hmm. network shows. And by network shows, we're saying like ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, right? People have different expectations. The audience has different expectations. The people making the show have different expectations. The networks themselves, the executives have different expectations. If you watch what is considered a comedy show on FX Mm -hmm. or on Netflix or Amazon, anything, usually you're not watching a comedy show. You're watching a half-hour show that has a specific tone and a specific set of qualities. And when I say it's not a comedy show, that doesn't mean they can't be funny. It just means that their primary objective is not being funny. I watched all of the show Glow on Mm. Netflix. I really liked it. I thought it was great. But... If you just like did a very basic analysis of like what's funnier, Glow or some network TV show, Fresh mm-hmm. Off the Boat, Glow would lose. Yeah. And that's not because Glow isn't funny. It's because Glow is not trying to be as funny as a network sitcom. Yeah. It has other goals, and it met those goals very excellently and, mm-hmm. and skillfully. We are all being sort of like lied to, in a sense, by the very old crusty calcified structures of like the TV Academy, Mm -hmm. which literally codified as a rule, the idea that any show that is a half hour long is a quote comedy end quote. (laughs) And any show that is an hour long is a drama, (laughs) which is so dumb. It's hard to even articulate how dumb that is, but that, (laughs) but they made that an actual rule. That's the deal. If your show is a half hour long, it's a comedy. It doesn't matter. It could be about the Holocaust. It's a comedy. This is a rule. What do you mean by that? It's a rule. Well, there were these problems as the landscape has gotten much more cluttered and Mm. and there have been all these different kinds of shows. And like a a type of show has emerged in the last 15 years, which is unclassifiable as either a drama or comedy. Some of them are half hour long. Some of them are an hour long, but they're neither. They're not comedies where it's just joke, 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 joke. And they're not dramas like cops chasing bad guys. They're somewhere in between. Orange is the New Black would qualify as that, obviously. But... What happened was shows networks started gaming the system. They would submit Orange is the New Black as either a comedy or a drama, depending on where they thought they had a better chance of getting nominated, because why not? So a couple years ago, the TV Academy came out and said, hey, okay, here's the rule. It's a half hour, it's a comedy. <laughs> and if it's an hour, it's a drama, which is, makes everything way worse. It's yeah. so much worse than what they had before. So when people watch network comedies, network comedies are still the kinds of comedies that are going for jokes primarily. Like... They still have like the much more broadly comedic premises, broadly comedic scenes, broadly comedic performances, stuff like that. Now, the good place, I would say, is edging toward the other thing. Like yeah. we have a lot of jokes. We have like classic sitcom scenarios. We have silly jokes and we have, you know, Manny Jacinto plays a character, John Yu slash Jason, who is a pretty classic sitcom dumb guy who says <laughs> sitcom dumb guy things. But there's stuff about morality and ethics and stuff that you would less associate with with a network show than with like a Netflix show or whatever. But the point of this whole thing is to say like all these lines are blurring. I have a nine-year-old son and a seven-year-old daughter. 
they're completely unfamiliar with the concept of channels or stations. Hmm. Like they know what button to push on our home system to get the show that they want to watch. They don't care about NBC or CBS or yeah. Netflix or Amazon. It's all the same thing. And I feel like in another five or 10 years, that's really going to be true. No one will have any idea or care what specific medium is delivering them the thing they want. It's funny. I mean, I'm, I am old enough to remember twisting a dial on a TV Me too. channel, TV box. And then but, adjusting the, yeah. the metal rabbit ears yeah. to make the picture come in better. Yeah. And I sort of slowly started to realize I don't do any of the things I used to do with TV. Like, and it's, it's kind of like, I almost like long for like the old pop it on and like surf, but like, I don't think I've done that since 2008. Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it is uh, of the many things that our kids will not be able to believe was true about our lives. The idea of walking across a room, pulling a knob out, and then like <laughs> turning a knob, that's insane. That's going to be crazier in some ways than like we didn't have cell phones. My iPad controls my DVD player. That's ridiculous. One striking moment for me in the show was when the Nixon tape suddenly comes in. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, let's do the Nixon tapes. That's my jam! What you always have to remember with the Irish is they get mean. Virtually every Irish I've known gets mean when he drinks. I think that's my favorite joke of the year. <laughs> it's the it's a good reminder of all the awful things that Nixon said, which sometimes yes. doesn't always get published. It's a, a bunch of demons have come up to the good place, uh, which obviously is really the bad place. But the bunch of demons are up there and they're singing karaoke. Instead of singing karaoke to music, they do it to like Mussolini speeches. <laughs> And the Nixon tapes, <laughs> Nixon tapes. <laughs> which he just starts talking about the Jews and all these things. Part of the reason we wanted to do that is those are real things. Yes. Like he, Nixon really said that yeah. and he really recorded it yeah. and it really exists and you can go listen to it. Yeah. And it's amazing. It's not dissimilar from certain aspects of our current situation here right. in America with our current president. Like there are actual quotes with like Nixon talking to Kissinger a Jew yeah. and saying things about Jewish people yeah. while Kissinger just sits there and lets it happen that are insane. And it was like, I partly it did feel like, yeah, no, we need to remind people that this was yeah. real. What do you think is going on in this country? Like- uh, oh boy. I mean, <laughs> that's a kind of a big question yeah. I would say right now. I'll tell you this. I've never seen more civic engagement, mm. which I think is good. Yeah. I wish it were under far different circumstances. It sort of feels like being stuck in the bad place. Yeah, I mean, we know what was very interesting, regardless of your political views, is our show aired its finale the night before the inauguration. Hmm. So the night before the inauguration, the reveal was this very idyllic, pastoral, beautiful, bespoke heaven is actually hell (laughs) uh, was put out into the universe. It was very hilarious and ironic. The other thing was, is that in that finale, which aired as an hour, the very first scene of that hour is a flashback to Eleanor on the day she died. Hmm. And she's walking through a grocery store getting a bunch of stuff for herself and she just does a bunch of like little stupid bad things. She crashes into a cart and somehow barks at the woman like it's her fault. Ow, what the hell? Walk it off, Lululemon. She just does a bunch of bad things. And then she dies. And the song that is playing while she walks through the grocery store is My Way by Frank Sinatra, which is a pay-in to the idea of selfishness. Yeah. And, and uh, it's a man celebrating his lack of empathy. And so that was the song we picked for the soundtrack for her selfish life and in the moments before she died. The next day, President Trump was sworn in as president. Ladies and gentlemen, the first couple, Donald and Melania Trump. 
the end is near. And his first dance <laughs> with his wife was to the song My Way. And obviously we had no idea that was going to happen, but it was almost spooky that we are putting on display behaviors which we consider to be antithetical to the idea of living in a modern society. Selfishness, lack of empathy, rudeness, a complete lack of interest in the inner lives of other people and a complete lack of interest in understanding how your actions affect other people. And then the next day, the president used the same song to say like, I'm here, baby. (laughs) (laughs) So it was like, it was hard not to think about that. And it has remained hard not to think about that since that moment. Well, listen, this has been great. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Showrunners. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Acast and iTunes and leave us a review. It really helps.